Welcome to Brand New Taste, a podcast for brands in the food and beverage industry, focusing on new innovation and how understanding taste is vital to commercial success. Your hosts are Brant Mabry and Micah Carhill, co-founders of the leading development agency, Tastehead. Brant, hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. I want to talk to you about flavours, the best flavours for new products. Okay, happy to indulge. Yeah, I've got a few questions for you first. Mm, so I want, to, I want to find out what your favourite flavours are on certain things. The first mm. one being crisps. Mm. Nowadays, salt and vinegar. Yeah. Ready salted, massively underrated. Boring. Yeah, but still pretty good. Well, I'd, I'd choose it good over. Good for dipping. Yeah, I, I still choose it over a lot of other flavors. But I don't. I don't eat that many crisps nowadays. Back when I was a kid, nice and spicy knickknacks. Yeah, you dirty, dirty boy. They they don't taste as good as they used to. Probably because they've taken a lot of bad ingredients out of them that made them so tasty when I was a kid. When you say bad, you mean good. Yeah, like salt. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. What about ice cream? Favorite flavor. Probably chocolate. Mm, if it's a good gelato store, salted caramel, pistachio, hazelnuts. Oh, it's a couple of my favourites in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but if it's a supermarket shop, I think even even vanilla. To be honest, I love a vanilla. You know that I love vanilla I ice cream. It's I like you copied me. What about a soft drink? Don't. I try to keep cut them down. I, I would say you know I have to throw you credit for the quartz and rhubarb. I do really like that one. Thank you very much. I will occasionally be found with a Coke in my hand. Also, one of my favourites, if I'm if I've overindulged, like you know, once or twice a year, if I a bit more often. Let's no, be no, no, no. So, I mean, I think we agree on a lot of those. Yeah. Do you have any others to throw in the mix? Not really. Salt and vinegar, you know, for crisps. Mm. Vanilla is a good standard because if they can't make a good vanilla and ice cream brand, yeah. then what they're doing. And, um, yeah, I love a coat. I can't really talk up the Corsten because that would be a bit biased, wouldn't it? True. But, I mean, I think this very small sample size of two, <laughs> does it tell us anything? This is the question. Well, I sense that you're trying to land a point here. Yeah, quite subtly, I find. Yeah, which yeah. is that the favourite flavours are often the classics that have been around for a long time. Yeah. So I get the direction you're going in here. I feel like we're going to be diving into when to choose these classic flavours and maybe when not to. Yeah, I think there's a reason for both. Mm -hmm. So when you're starting an innovation project, where do you begin in terms of looking at what the best flavours are for that particular piece of MPD? Okay, so there's a, there's a number of things you can look at. So I think you need to obviously look at the category, look at the competitive set, see what sells best. So there's usually a reason, isn't there? And also something that I don't think people think so much about is what can be achieved in that category in that sort of base and what i mean by that is that if you've got something like ice cream or or yogurt or anything dairy based then certain flavors work better in that format vanilla being a, a classic one yeah we talked about this in our first episode how consider the base yeah exactly when, yeah um whereas other things like let's say citrus probably wouldn't work so well with dairy because we've all i mean we've all done it, haven't we you get a glass of milk you pour some orange juice in 
just to see the curdling, <laughs> um, just for a laugh, and then, then you feed it to your little brother or sister. As a but, joke. Yeah, exactly. But there are good reasons. Some things don't go together so well. So even if you've got something that is like a flavour, that's a trending flavour, you shouldn't just shoehorn it into to a category of food just because that's the case. You've got to consider these things. Yeah, and, and, and other considerations. We've, we've done a number of HPP projects, yeah. the high-pressure processing, and a lot of the products that we've looked at have been for products that would sometimes have a more alkaline profile now unfortunately or you know occasionally unfortunately you need to have an acidic profile for hpp to work the ph has got to be below somewhere like 4.5 i forget the exact number off the top of my head and therefore you lean more towards fruity flavors etc as soon as you start looking at trying to do vanilla or chocolate the acidity clashes and so sometimes you've got production reasons or shelf life reasons of uh, acidity being a certain level and that can impact which flavors you choose. Yeah, no, I agree. There's, there, there, I think we always need to consider that base. It's so important. So let's imagine that somebody is starting a chocolate brand and they find themselves in this position. They want to launch with three or four SKUs. Which flavors do they choose? What are the first steps that they should take in figuring out which flavors to focus on? I mean, it, it obviously depends on whether it's a premium chocolate or whether it's more of a sort of mass market sort of chocolate brand. But ultimately, you've got to look at what the sort of decision tree is in, in something like chocolate. Mm-hmm. So what we found out at our time with Green and Blacks is that actually the first decision people make is not the brand, but is the type of chocolate. And when I mean type of chocolate, I mean milk, dark, white and that is the popularity order across the UK in general, yes. not, not for someone like Green and Blacks. But if you're going premium, then obviously something like dark is going to figure more relevantly. So first of all, you've got to look at the bases. And actually, you saw it as well in, in your time there at Green and Blacks, is that the best sellers were actually dark 70, yeah. dark 85, yeah. milk. Yeah. White was pretty far up, actually. Yeah, it was, and then it was actually, the, the fifth or sixth sort of exactly. skew when you started seeing flavors coming and, and you did obviously the flavors did come in things like the the uh the butterscotch bar and and the almond bar and things like that but yeah. these the ones that had inclusions or flavors were actually sort of lower down so a very important thing when starting a brand is making sure that you do cover these classic flavors to some extent because otherwise if you go with too many sort of niche flavors then people aren't going to go straight for them because it's not what they know so much. It's no, no harm in having the odd one in there, but it's quite a sort of, you've got to be quite a bold person just to go in with sort of niche, weird and wonderful flavours, I think. So you need to cover the base flavours, the classics, in most cases. I'd say so. They're your bread and butter for yeah. most brands. Let's have a look at some reasons of why you might go for some niche flavors. So there are a number of reasons. Something might be to keep a, a, a buyer or a customer happy. New news to a category is always good. So that will keep them happy if you're a brand that's willing to, to bring something in there. Um, it may just be a seasonal item um, and something at a limited edition, but that's fine. It gives, gives them something. It also gives your brand something. 
it might be keeping the consumers happy. So it's a slightly different thing there because they're, they're looking for their favourite brand to bring something exciting and new to them and that will keep them buying all, all your staple base sort of flavours as well. There was an example, a Lint, they put out a, a, a wasabi chocolate, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, I don't imagine they expected that to take off and become the bestseller exactly. over the long term. Yeah, but I mean, you know, but it, it got a lot of PR, mm. a lot of press, which is another reason why you might do it. You might just do it for like PR reasons and just to get that sort of halo effect of the brand, something to just just give excitement to the category. Yeah, I I always think a good example of when you might want to go a bit more creative with your flavours is if you're a smaller brand and you're entering a pretty saturated category and you don't have many USPs when it comes to uh, health or sustainability and essentially you're just trying to do a great tasting product. If you start going, if you're trying to launch with vanilla or chocolate and you're having a meeting with a potential buyer mm. and they've already got four or five vanilla chocolate products on the shelf, it's going to be difficult for yeah. them to, for you to, to justify why they should switch those out for your product. So uh, it's fair to say we have a lot of startups come to us where they go quite wacky and creative or over the top is probably a better <laughs> phrase with their flavor combinations. And I'd say the only time where we, we, we think there is a case for that is when you look at the competitive set and if that's what you've got to do to get cut through. And then hopefully you, you get your product out there, start selling, people recognize the brand. Yes. You can then step in yeah. and, and put in some of the more classic flavors because people recognize the brand. Yes. So it doesn't mean that you completely ignore those, but you can come in at a later date when, when you've got some brand recognition. Yeah. Could you give us a, an example of a niche or more creative flavor Brand. that you have uh, <laughs> developed into a product? I, I can. It is <laughs> in a can as well. Brilliant. It's uh, the rhubarb for Corsten Press, sparkling rhubarb. Yeah. I think with that, um, you know, if we'd done some research on which flavors to, to go for, it, that would never have come up. No. Um, but it fitted the, the brand. It's a um, kitchen garden flavor. It's, it's British. It's nostalgic. And it's the best seller. It's the, now the best seller. I mean, we, we had a juice that had some rhubarb in it, but to, to make it more just rhubarb rather than apple and rhubarb, it's a, it's a flavor that has, has really sort of captured the imagination of uh, consumers. And, but if we'd, like I said, tested it beforehand as a flavor with consumer groups, mm. there would have been, oh, no, I like my lemonade and my yeah. orange and my, uh, you know, all the classic sort of flavors. Yeah. So there's a, a, an example where going in niche worked well. Yeah, and I think another, for me, strength of that particular flavour is the colours of the packaging. I think the beautiful pinks and reds that you've got in contrast with the whites and greys yeah. on the can. Stands out It on the really shelf. does. It stands out. It looks really pretty. And so things like that do have an impact. And then it's the taste that delivers. And I think from, uh, obviously, I wasn't involved with the development. Oh, I can't take any credit for the Corsten stuff, sadly. Hopefully one day. Um but I remember you telling me that, as we do with most of our um, development projects, you start looking at what raw materials are available, being quite pragmatic with it. What, what can we get hold of? And then yeah. tasting them and seeing what works, what doesn't. And that was one where it, just, it was obvious that it worked taste-wise. Correct. Uh, hence, another reason why, why um, the confidence to back it. And also, it was about to get, being able to get good taste. So, you know, sometimes these flavors don't work just because you can't get hold of 
you know, let's say good rhubarb juice or good rhubarb flavor. Now I, I was able to, but if I couldn't, then I wouldn't have pushed it as a, as a flavor because it wouldn't have delivered what we needed. Yeah. You just mentioned then about good or bad flavors. Yeah. Come back to that in a minute. Okay. First of all, do you have a niche flavor that you developed, launched, and then it wasn't successful? I, I do. And I'm, again, I'm going to go back to Corsten. Uh, so I've been there now for a fair few years and, and not all were successes. So we, we put out a sparkling root, uh, gooseberry rather, and that didn't work so well. Now, it's not because it was a bad flavor. I actually really liked it. It was one of my favorite and it was, it was very simple. It, it was apple juice, sparkling water and gooseberry puree that gave the best flavor no no actual flavorings in there because they didn't work but what i realized is once we launched and we were you know asking people about the flavor and what they thought is a lot of people were like oh i don't really like it and i was like ask them a question it was like well it you know it tastes a bit weird and i was like well why is that do you have you never tasted a gooseberry before and they were like mm. no i haven't and so the thing there was that i loved it because i love gooseberries i know gooseberries i cook with gooseberries so many people don't know what gooseberries yeah, taste like. Familiarity is so exactly. important. They might have heard of a gooseberry. Obviously, we've all heard of gooseberries. Sure. We've all heard of rhubarb. People were familiar with the flavour of rhubarb and not of gooseberries. So it didn't work. So that was just too niche in that sense. You're listening to Brand New Taste. Your hosts are Micah Carhill, food scientist, product developer and taste expert who has held the position of Head of Taste at premium brands Green and & Blacks and Corston Press. And Brant Maybury, Development Chef, Taste Specialist and Managing Director of Tastehead, leading innovation projects for brands of all sizes. Other good examples aren't so much ones that didn't work because they were too niche flavour-wise, but they didn't work commercially. So I think that is something we need to consider. It's not just what the consumer might like to taste. Because when I was at Green and Blacks, I think this might have been before your time there, but I worked on some products that either didn't work because they were too expensive to make or production-wise. So I did a bar with Medjool dates. Now, Medjool dates, A, are expensive, B, are really mm. sticky. And even mm. if you coat them in rice flour, they're not going to go through a, 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 a depositor. Another one was pistachios, which I did a, a, a mixture of, of, of those really fragrant ones. I love pistachios. I love pistachios. Who doesn't? And mm. um, Good ones, like you say. Good ones. But it also had some salty pistachios. It had that mixture, and that worked so well. Couldn't afford it. I mean, mm. if we'd sold the bar for 10 quid a bar, maybe. But, you know, that would have been four times the price of, and of the And there are chocolate bar. brands selling bars for 10 pound but, yeah, but the volume's really, small exactly exactly wouldn't, wouldn't fly at green and black exactly and then there are other things like uh popcorn we looked at but again it's just too light just can't process yeah. it i remember trying popcorn in chocolate and think, oh, that's a great idea why has no one done that before and then you basically get this bar of chocolate where all the popcorn has floated up to, up to well because you 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 mold them upside down so it's floated up to what ends up being the bottom of the bar yeah. and so you've got this weird bar that seems to be levitating on a bed of popcorn yeah exactly um, really difficult can, to wrap yes exactly <laughs> you can carry you can kibble and caramelize and so on and I think All that's that. what we ended up looking at but it's uh, still very difficult and another yeah. one is something as simple as let's say peanuts um it's not because you can't do it a lot of people do but you need dedicated 
factories because obviously yeah. it's an allergen. And so sometimes, you you know, at Greenblatt's, we did we launched that in America, caramelized salted peanuts, wonderful bar. Mm. Um, but we could never find anyone in the UK to make it. So there are constraints that might make you not go for a flavor that aren't just to do with the flavor. Sure. So back to what you said about there being good and potentially bad flavors. Tell us a bit more what you mean about that. Okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use vanilla as an example here. Mm. People sort of sometimes hear like vanilla extract, vanilla essence, wonder what the difference is. Well, yeah. there's quite a lot of difference. If we're going from the top down, vanilla extract, that is 100% from vanilla. That's as pure as you can get. Creme de la creme. Exactly. Wonderful stuff. And it could be off of Madagascar, but it can be Haitian, Tahitian, and it can be uh, other places as well. Anyway, lovely. Then next step down, you've got FNTF, which is uh, from the name fruit. Yeah. And that means it's got to be at least 95% from that, in this case, vanilla. So mm. it's still really good. Not quite as expensive, not quite as maybe intense, but mm. still very good. And you would declare that as natural vanilla flavoring. Correct. So yeah. vanilla extract, natural vanilla flavoring. Next is natural flavoring. So it's vanilla, but it's got less than 95% mm. of the the fruit. In this case, it's a, a pod, isn't it? Um, and then at the bottom, you've got artificial flavoring so you'll get that which is just straight vanillin which is one of the flavor molecules in vanilla mm-hmm. but this is just produced in a, in a lab there's also some well there's some questionable places where it can come from as well i'm not actually going to tell them on the podcast but all right i would, yeah. I would just say google, google it. <laughs> vanillin and beavers. beavers i will leave it at that oh i haven't heard that one but it's a really good breakdown of vanilla extract then natural vanilla flavoring, then natural flavoring, and then the artificial flavoring. And that's what vanilla essence is. Yes. Sounds lovely when you say vanilla essence, but it's artificial. So I think that's a good little nugget there to let people know that how the quality of your flavorings can change. What else do we have? Yeah, another thing I think is when we're talking about good and bad is more around flavors that are extracted well. So to give an example, we've talked about vanilla. That works. Citrus works really well because there's lots of oils in there. But something like cherry, for instance, is that if you have anything that's cherry-flavoured, it doesn't taste of cherries if you go and eat a cherry. It'll taste of cherry flavour, yeah. which we all know, whether it's from a yoghurt or, or, or whatever. So to me, you're not really getting the, in this case, it, it's a good, it means a good thing, the essence of that fruit <laughs> um, because it's very hard to, to make something like that. And I think the other thing is sometimes flavorings aren't the way forward. Um, we, we worked on a, a product that got launched recently, Stratford Sodas, and that's got yuzu in it. Now, we looked mm. at loads of extracts, so from, just from yuzu, some FTNF. And, but what we found out was actually it was the yuzu juice, NFC juice, which was the not, that's, that's not from concentrate juice, which worked best in this. So you've got to look at all the sort of options available and find which works best, gives the best delivery. All right, let's talk about trends and the ones that stay, the ones that don't. I think there's a graveyard of trends that have come along over the years and people jump onto them and a year or two later, maybe sometimes a little bit longer, they're no more to be seen. Yeah, we've all seen them. I mean, I would say that a trend is no longer a trend when it becomes uh, an established flavour. Yeah. Now, one that you could say was a trend a while back 
10 years or so, maybe a bit longer, was salted caramel. Yeah. Now it's in everything. I was in supermarket the other day, club, as in the biscuit. If you like. A lot of jo- <laughs> You know the one? And anyway, so they, they've got salted caramel. That's new. Um, so it's across the board. Now, as you know, being a chef, is that salted caramel used to be known as caramel. Yes. Because all caramel has salt in it. Yeah, yeah, I was always taught to add a pinch of salt to caramel because it tames the bitterness, it seasons it, brings out a bit of flavour. We never called it salted caramel. I think in America for years before it was known as salted caramel. And then over here, yeah, yeah. it suddenly evolved. Yeah, maybe there's a bit more salt in some of these recipes, sure. but ultimately it's still just caramel. But, you know, that, that's fine. It's stuck, it's stuck well, and it's a, it's a good flavour with a lot of things. Yeah. Um, the different qualities of it, of course, but when it's good, it's great. Yeah. Goji berries. You remember them? I, I do. I read that they were, again, I went to a lot of trade shows where they, you know, they were always trying to punch you different things, whether it was, you know, goji berries or hemp or whatever. Yeah. Goji berries, someone kept calling me and saying, oh, why don't you have them do it? They're superfood. And superfood is another trend that, I don't know if it's on the wane, but this was one of them. And the trouble with goji berries is that they are very sour, very astringent, mm. probably a bit bitter as well. Flavor-wise, they're not very good. Mm. So they might be might be good for you, but ultimately they didn't work in any of the products that I was looking at. A more recent trend that I think is evolving now, and it'll be interesting to see where it's at in another two, three, five years' time, is matcha. Yeah, I think we had the peak of it with matcha soft serve and matcha Kit Kats and lots of other products. We've worked on a number of matcha projects, but what we're seeing now is people are actually focusing on kind of the ceremonial grade matcha. And instead of it being novelty products, just good quality matcha and beverages from it, etc. So whether it will continue to go in that direction. um, I think so. It works, doesn't it? In that sense is when you put it in something where it's not typical. Yeah. I think that's where it, it can be a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, so also some things that are not necessarily what I'd call trends, but you might go to somewhere like the US and see that there's a trend over there, or maybe it's established over there. And, and so people think, ah, oh, that's that's a trend there, so I'll, I'll implement it into into the UK. But it doesn't always work. So one that always I think of is something like grape. So mm. You've got loads of, you've got grape jelly, you've got grape drinks, a number of different things, sweets. Yeah. Um, confectionery you don't get them here it's not yeah. a flavor here and you know there may be a number of reasons but you can look and, and get some really good ideas from other countries but don't expect them always to work i think yeah. right so slowly starting to wrap this episode up do we have an example of a project we're working on where there's actually a strong reason why not to add flavors to products yeah, I think uh, the one that I would think to talk about would be with Border Biscuits, who we work with. Yeah. We're their innovation partners. And I think, obviously, they do have some flavour biscuits, but sometimes the biscuit speaks for itself. Yes. So that combination of flour, sugar, fat, and when it's baked, you get the mild reaction and you just get those lovely caramelly biscuity notes and you've got the salt in there as well to cut through the sweetness the butteriness of the butter the butteriness yeah, if you're of the butter, if exactly. you're using good quality butter yeah, yeah you know that's yeah and i think that, you know there now you could add some vanilla or you could add another flavor orange or something like that but when when you've got that really lovely uh baked biscuit quality sometimes that's all you need 
Okay, Bran, um, thanks for indulging me. You know how much I like to talk about flavours. It was Well, pleasure was all mine. Uh, but, um, you know, I think there was some great stuff in there. The only bit that I'm slightly concerned about when I asked you about your favourite crisp, you said knickknacks. It's a snack, not a crisp. So um, I've got a bone to pick with you there. Okay, um, we'll talk about this. We'll talk off, about it off, off, the off, off the air. But... Um, before we go, um, is there anything you can recommend as further reading or something that the that our listeners can can get hold of? Yes, I'm going to recommend a pretty classic book in our line of work, The Flavor Thesaurus by Nikki Segnit. It's a very good book that com- uh, it explains how flavors work of certain foods and drinks. It gives you great recommendations for combinations does yeah certain flavors were the favors and for for us we're aware of a lot of combinations that work but sometimes it's just good to have something that jogs your memory yeah gives you a bit of inspiration and sometimes she actually says here was a combination that i don't even really like but some people have put these together yes so it's not just saying these are these are great combinations it's about you know, different combinations that have been used through the food industry yeah, so it's very it's very useful, but it's also a nice book, pretty yeah. cover. Yeah, could be a coffee table book. Yeah, yeah. So definitely choose that. Lovely one. stuff. Well, thanks a lot, Bran. I Thank will uh, be speaking again with you about snacks and crisps. I'm sure we will. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. And for more information, please visit tastehead.com. We hope you join us for our next episode.